We say that alcoholism is a disease of relationships. What do we mean by this? How are our relationships damaged and how can we recover from that damage? Welcome to episode 368 of The Recovery Show. This episode is brought to you by Marilyn, Carmen, Catherine, Robin, Rebecca, Charlotte, and Eric. They use the donation button on our website. Thank you, Marilyn, Carmen, Catherine, Robin, Rebecca, Charlotte, and Eric for your generous contributions. This episode, and in fact, all of the episodes are for you. We are friends and family members of alcoholics and addicts who have found a path to serenity and happiness. We who live or have lived with the seemingly hopeless problem of addiction understand as perhaps few others can. So much depends on our own attitudes, and we believe that changed attitudes can aid recovery. Before we begin, we would like to state that in this show, we represent ourselves rather than any 12-step program. During this show, we will share our own experiences. The opinions expressed here are strictly those of the person who gave them. Take what you like and leave the rest. We hope that you will find something in our sharing that speaks to your life. My name is Spencer. I am your host today, and joining me today is Megan. Welcome back to The Recovery Show, Megan. Thanks for having me back. You were here in April 2018 on episode 243. Uh, Time flies. Talking about recovery with young children, and I went back and listened to that episode last night, and there's a lot of good stuff in there. So those of you who've been asking about, how do I do this when I have young children? Go listen to Megan. There's a lot of wisdom there. Oh, yeah. It was fun. It was fun to, to do that, and I'm excited to do it again today. So today we're talking about this disease of relationships idea, and of course we're going to start with a reading. Yeah, so this reading comes from Paths to Recovery, page 8 and into 9. It says, alcoholism is a family disease. This means the alcoholism of one member affects the whole family and all become sick. Why does this happen? Unlike diabetes, alcoholism not only exists in the body of the alcoholic, but is a disease of relationships as well. Many of the symptoms of alcoholism are in the behaviors of the alcoholic. The people who are involved with the alcoholic react to his behavior. They try to control it, make up for it, or hide it. They often blame themselves for it and are hurt by it. Eventually, they become emotionally disturbed themselves, and that comes from Alateen Hope for Children of Alcoholics, page 6. And I think I'm just going to go ahead and read the next um, little bit here. Mm Mm-hmm. In Al-Anon meetings, we hear our powerlessness over alcoholism described as we didn't cause it, we can't cure it, and can't control it. We begin to learn the basic Al-Anon premise of taking our focus off the alcoholic and keeping the focus on ourselves. Hard as it is to look at our own part in our problems, acceptance of step one brings relief from the impossible responsibilities. We are trying to fix a disease and someone else's disease at that. That is so true. One of the key things in this for me, where it talks about disease of relationships, is this sentence, many of the symptoms of alcoholism are in the behavior of the alcoholic, Mm -hmm. and that affects the people around them in very many ways. (laughs) I became angry. Some people withdraw. I also thought I could control it. The insidious thing there was that my reactions to the alcoholism not only affected me, mm-hmm. but they affected my relationships with other people as well. It wasn't just the relationship between me 
and my loved one. It was in the relationship between me and my children. It was in the relationship between me and my coworkers, which is really interesting because my loved one was not involved in those relationships. But I became, I'll say unbalanced in my attitudes, in my behaviors, because of the way I was reacting to the alcoholic behavior and my attempts to control the alcoholic behavior, I think is the way to, to think about that. You wrote to suggest this topic, and I'm, I'm a little curious, like, what sparked that for you? Yeah, I was curious about that, too, when I was sitting down to really read it. But I've been thinking a lot about relationships and really how the disease has affected them. I love this reading and in some of my meetings to go through the, the steps using this book. And even the first time I, I heard that, the disease of relationships, it just really struck me as something that I could identify with. And everything that you just said, I can say, yeah, I, I totally identify with all the ways that I reacted and how it affected my life. I don't live with active alcoholism anymore. So for me, I've realized that even without active alcoholism, I really struggle with relationships in general. And I've been, I have been listening to some of the your recent podcasts, and I just heard a theme. You know, I, heard, I listened like three back to back one day, and I just heard this theme of the disease of relationships. So I thought this might be a nice area to explore. And I don't think we've explored it with that focus. Yeah. I think, it, as you say, it has come up in a number of, of episodes, but I haven't really focused on it. Absolutely. This is the reading for step one out of Pastor Recovery. It's part of that reading mm -hmm. for step one. And so step one says, we admitted we were powerless over alcohol, which I think the spiritual principle there to some extent is acceptance that we are powerless. And he doesn't use the word accept. We accepted that we admitted. <laughs> and actually, I, I think about Bill Wilson's word choices sometimes. And admitted has this action component to it. It has this implication that I'm not just talking to myself, that I'm talking to somebody else. And I'm saying, I'm powerless. So it's a little bit stronger than acceptance because acceptance to me feels inside. And then the other thing that is in this paragraph and just, I don't know, I have an older edition of the book and in the older edition, that second paragraph starts with a sentence in Al-Anon meetings. We hear the three C's describing our powerlessness over alcoholism. We didn't, cause it, can't cure it, and can't control it. And at some point, they went through the literature and took out all of the three C's and four M's. And hmm. yeah, I like those shorthands. Hmm. Eric calls them the pocket change. The three C's. What are the three C's? Oh, yeah. That phrase, sentence, it's, yeah, I guess we didn't cause it, can't cure it, can't control it. That's all sentence. That sentence is actually what got me to come to Al-Anon in the first place. Because when I heard that, when I finally heard that, I don't know how many times somebody had said it, but I finally heard it. I felt this burden coming off of me, but at the same time, I was like, I thought fixing the alcoholic drinking would fix all my other problems. And now I can't fix the alcoholic drinking, 
which is a good thing. I felt that was a good thing, but I still got problems. <laughs> I do. What does that reading say to you? Well, I, I love I love hearing you share about what brought you down on because I'm so interested when people talk about what actually got them in the doors. But I don't remember hearing the three C's for the first time. I do remember listening to it for the first time and thinking I did not enjoy the idea of it at all. I'm glad to know somebody else said I didn't cause it because at that point, my my ex-husband had been telling me I had caused it. And I think his family members too, perhaps. So that was a relief. But then the cure or control, I thought, that's, are you sure? You know, everything with the, with step one has, is difficult. Anytime a step asks me to admit something, it is difficult for me. So I think we admit again in step five. And then I think there's another place where we admit, but I've always found that those ones are really, those are steep learning curves for me because a big part of the acceptance of step one was what you said. We, it's sort of an action. We admitted. And also I love when I've heard in meetings that the first word of the first step is we. I just love that. And it's a reminder to me that this is a we program and we do need these relationships to recover with one another. I love these paragraphs because it's the first step is where we all start. And generally speaking, when I find myself in um, times of trouble, <laughs> I don't, I'm not going to break out into song, but when I find myself with, faced with a problem, I usually need to go right back to step one and realize that I am powerless. It's rough, <laughs> rough for me. You got that song going in my head now. Me too. Oh boy. Yeah. Yeah. So you pointed me to our blueprint for progress book. Yes. Which is our fourth step workbook. Our amazingly long and daunting (laughs) fourth step workbook. (laughs) There's a chapter in there on relationships. Mm -hmm. And I thought I might read the introduction to that chapter. There are many different kinds of relationships and many have multiple levels of intensity. Having been affected by alcoholism, many of us find it difficult to form and sustain close relationships. Our actions often teach people how to treat us. It may be all too obvious that we expect too much or too little from life. We may not know how to interact with people. We may decide that having others in our lives is just not worth the effort, so we deprive ourselves of companionship. Sometimes the hardest relationships are the ones we didn't choose. These are relationships with family members. If we're lucky, we eventually learn that both individuals must make an effort in order for a relationship to work, and such work can begin with us. Our behavior can be a powerful example to those around us. As our self-esteem improves, we may enjoy improvements in the quality of our relationships. As we do our best in all of our encounters, people notice and may respond accordingly. That last couple sentences is the hope part of this, right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Like the beginning is like, (laughs) you're effed up. (laughs) Welcome to the club. (laughs) Yeah, welcome to the club. Yeah. And then there's questions. And I think you you highlighted some of the questions. But I just want to, this sentence, we may decide that having others in our lives is just not worth the effort. I don't recall ever like deciding that. Mm -hmm. But... When the alcoholism was really active in our family and before I found Alan on recovery, I was isolating. I wasn't saying, oh, it's just too much work, but that's what was happening. Mm-hmm. 
So that I don't know that I, I've read this thing a few times. I, I don't know that I ever noticed that sentence before. Yeah. Yeah. But do you find that even with recovery, you tend to isolate? I don't so much. I, I compare myself. I'm sure what? you do too. I compare <laughs> myself to others. I have lived in this neighborhood for 33 years now. I know a few people in the neighborhood to at least say hi to on the street. Our neighbors next door who were there when we moved in, you know, we know them, we know their kids, but we don't like gather. It's like more like we see each other on the street or occasionally we, they're having a party and we go, or they're, we're having a party and they go, we say hi across the fence. My neighbor two doors up seemingly knows everybody. He knows them. He knows their dogs. He knows their children. I'm like, wow, what's the difference here? He's clearly more social or whatever than I am. I, I have a number of acquaintances. I have a few close friends. I don't keep up absent relationships very well. But during the alcoholic era, I'll call it, <laughs> I was more isolated. I don't want to be isolated. I do want to have friends. I do want to enjoy being with people. Today, as I, as I mentioned before we started, today was the first day we had in-person church in 19 months. And it was such a joy to see people, to try to recognize them with face masks. <laughs> people would come up and, oh, thank God for name tags. And so I want that contact. So yeah, that's it's a mixed bag for me. How about you? So that that sentence that you pointed out in I've this is my first blueprint which I did maybe five years ago and I just put a frowny face next to it but in reviewing this I I think this is maybe why I have been focusing so much on relationships is that in a way I'm finding myself even without living with active alcoholism that I in so many ways I am almost deciding certain things aren't worth the effort. And I have been depriving myself of companionship and I don't want to do that anymore. So maybe admitting it, it will be helpful, <laughs> mm -hmm. but also just, I think for me, the whole thing about the blueprint for progress, and it is daunting. I will say that for sure. The first time I bought it, I was going to try to do it all by myself because oh, yeah. I did not want to uh, burden anybody slash didn't want anybody to know me. <laughs> so Although I had a sponsor, I tried to do it on my own and I opened to the first, to the first section. It was on honesty, yes, which was the topic of one of your recent ones. And I was just like, Oh God, no, I don't want to, that's not where I wanted to start. So I closed it and eventually <laughs> I, and I left it in my car for, I think like months and months on end. And eventually I had the courage to ask my sponsor to help me go through it. And we didn't, it took years. Easy does it, but do it is what I needed to, to do on that one. But I love the progression of the different chapters. And so leading up to the relationship chapters, we go through a whole bunch of different things. And right before it, I'll say our responsibilities, finances, guilt, and shame. So I think the guilt and shame of even just being who I am still affects me, even all these years after being in program. And I am I'm going to just be honest, I'm still confused about that. So I've been doing a lot of exploring on that. But, but yeah, I will say uh, working with a sponsor was essential for me to get through a lot of these issues and even to be able to recognize them in myself right now. I didn't grow up with alcoholism in my family, but my parents are adult children. And I, they had a pretty tumultuous childhood from what I understand. And, and I think just growing up the way I did, I came into the relationship I had with my ex-husband who 
whose alcoholism bothered me or was drinking bothered me and brought me to the program. I think I just, whatever low self-esteem I had, I think that living with active alcoholism like obliterated it. I just Mm. didn't have any self-esteem left and slowly but surely I've been building it back. But that has been one of the hardest things to do in recovery for me is learning how to get self-esteem. And and I have a good friend in program who says to get esteem, you need to do esteemable acts. What's an esteemable act? This feels like an esteemable act. I wanted to cancel because I was so nervous in my head. I'm like, oh gosh, what do I have to offer anyone? But but I'm happy to serve in Al-Anon and I'm going off on a tangent, but, but yeah, my self-esteem has definitely been affected. I think that's, you know, important to note because mm-hmm. how we feel about ourselves, how I feel about mm-hmm. myself definitely affects the way that I'm able to be in, in relationship with people. And I don't think I have anything more to say about <laughs> that at the moment, but it definitely does. It well when I was, I love that you were like the chapters before, like guilt and shame. I think yeah. I two chapters right before oh, yeah. relationships. And I know for me that mm-hmm. shame was a huge part mm-hmm. of why I was isolating. Yes. Because I was ashamed of my loved one's behavior. I was mm-hmm. ashamed that I couldn't fix it mm-hmm. or at least control it. <laughs> and Rather than risk being ashamed of this becoming so obvious in in a friendship relationship, at a party, at a whatever, I just elected to not go there. Yeah. So self-esteem is a huge thing. And I I was gonna I was gonna pull out that if you want to feel esteem, do esteemable things, because yeah, I have a friend who yeah. says that a lot. And yes. This is an esteemable thing, in my opinion, to share your experience, strength, and hope with others, no matter how you feel about it. Even more so when you feel like, what do I have to offer? Because you do have something to offer. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I think another part of the way alcoholism has affected me is, and one of the reasons I do feel so much shame about myself is a survival skill was just like being dishonest. And and I didn't know it was dishonest until I did a bunch of inventories, but I always want to make people feel good. That was like a a way I would get self-esteem prior to recovery is if I could make someone feel good, if I could be of service in a way that served my ego, then I would feel better. And sometimes even in meetings, when I don't feel like I have anything to offer, I do find that when I open my mouth and share, I do find that it gives back to me as well. And it reminds me that's just my dishonesty. My wife has said, actually, we were having a conversation with one of our kids last night and My wife mentioned that she had taken her sponsee out to lunch to celebrate her sponsee's 34 years of sobriety, which is actually more than twice what my wife has. And our kid was like, how does that work that you're sponsoring somebody who has twice as much (laughs) years in the program as you do? And she said, my wife said, I believe, I know that I can learn from a woman who has one day of sobriety. Mm-hmm. It's so, not the length of sobriety necessarily that matters. I love that. It's true. And yeah. And so we each have things to contribute. And sometimes we don't even know what mm-hmm. we have. That is right. This reading goes on and there's a one, two sentence paragraph. Sometimes mm-hmm. the hardest relationships are the ones we didn't choose relationships with family members. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> 
and give you a minute on that. I think about the family that I engendered, me, my wife, my children. There are some difficult relationships in there. There were some relationships that got really difficult for a while. But also the family that I came from that was not a dysfunctional family, I don't Mm -hmm. think. But I definitely learned behaviors. I learned how to be in relationships. I learned how to be a people pleaser, for example, to put a label on it. Mm -hmm. I know I've said many times that my mother was the person who could not be happy until everybody else was happy. Mm -hmm. She couldn't enjoy herself unless everybody else was enjoying themselves. And I learned that behavior. I learned that I'm supposed to make you happy. I'm supposed to somehow show that you're important to me. I don't know exactly. To put it in words, it gets difficult. Mm -hmm. That led to dysfunctional relationship behaviors where I actually lost a friend through one of those behaviors. This was a friend in program and my brain, whatever was telling me that the way that I show that I'm interested in you is I show that I I know things about you. Right. And so in a conversation more than once, I revealed something about this person that they didn't want revealed. Mm-hmm. At the, in that context. And the first time they were like, you said this thing, you broke my anonymity a little bit there. And I, I'm not happy about that. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if it was the second time or the third time, but eventually the response was, I'm done. Mm-hmm. Wow. You know, we just can't be friends anymore. If you're going to keep doing that, my higher power gives me lots of chances to Feel the pain of my character defects so that I can become entirely ready to have them removed. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so when you essentially broke up, did you see it that way right away about your higher power giving you that? Oh, I don't know that. I'm not sure. It was a couple of years. I might have gone all the way through the steps once at that point. Not, I'm not completely sure. But I, it's hard for me now to say what I understood at the time and what I understood in mm-hmm. retrospect. What I do remember is... Not too long after that happened, like maybe a year, okay, I was giving a lead about Tradition 12, which is mm-hmm. all about anonymity. Yeah, it was 12, which is, yeah, anonymity is like central spiritual foundation of all our traditions. That's, that's it. And I used that story as part of my share to mm. say, look, this was the hard way that I learned something about protecting other people's anonymity. So I had figured it out at least a year later, mm-hmm, <laughs> if not awesome. sooner. Yeah. But we were talking about family, I yes. think. Um, yeah. And it's really hard for me to see how the alcoholism has undoubtedly affected my relationship with my children. I just, I, I don't have anything to compare it to. How about you? Yeah, I think when I read this one at first, I immediately thought of my parents. For me, I spent a long time, I spent most of my childhood in, and a good part of my adulthood blaming them for everything. And I don't think my family was necessarily dysfunctional either, just the way 
that we interacted with each other wasn't very kind. And so for me, I think early on in the program, I had to, I left my ex-husband, I had two very little kids and my mom, who I always had this really volatile relationship with, who I thought I was cursed for being her daughter. We were starting to get into this fight in front of my kids, which I never wanted to do. But then she said something snide to me, like, why don't you call your sponsor? And I said, oh my gosh, that's a great idea. And (laughs) I think that really, for me, a lot of the ways that I, that alcoholism has affected me is that it got me into recovery. It got me into recovery to actually face these things that I don't know if I wasn't affected by alcoholism the way I was, if I would have ever done that. I think I'd still be blaming her and I might not even have a relationship with her. I think I, they're going through inventories. There are good reasons why. I was angry with her and why she could have been angry with me. But that was the beginning for me. A lot of Alan has helped me with my relationship with her. I think one of the first times I ever used a slogan too, and it worked, was um, I was in a car with her and she drives this way I don't like. I never really feel safe in the car with her, but I always feel like I have to be in the car with her. And uh, and she was getting ready to merge on the highway, but she's like, I'm going to gun it. I was getting ready to light into her and tell her everything that she was doing that was wrong and how she was affecting me, blah, blah. And in my head popped, how important is it? And I was like, wow, I didn't have to do that this time. I actually felt like I didn't have to go there and it felt good. And then later on, I was like, I don't actually have to, I don't have to even ride in the car with her. I'm a grown up. (laughs) I have my own driver's license. (laughs) I can say, no, I'll take my own car. Now, these are things that came with coming back to program and, and really having the courage to face these things. Another thing I'll go over with my mom was that I was wor- walking with my sponsor and we were going over certain parts of the fourth step inventory. And I think I forget what we we're on, but I said something about, I know my parents love me, preface it, prefacing it before I said something to her about the parents that I thought was negative. And she said, of course they love you. Look at all they do for you. And I started crying. I I guess until that very moment, I never actually felt that they loved me, which was so interesting. Mm. And so there's some parts of our readings that I always thought were so corny when people talk about healing these relationships with their parents and they would say something about, and now I want to be the daughter they deserve. And I would always kind of roll my eyes because I thought it was so silly. But there has come a point in my recovery where I do want to be the daughter they deserve. And I'm, I'm able to see things more clearly. And I definitely didn't choose a relationship with them, but now I choose it on my terms, which is really miraculous for me because I hated my parents. They ruined my life. But here we are. And my mom is, she, she has lung cancer and she's still smoking. And it's hard for me because yeah. I think without program, I would not have a relationship with her based on that alone. But I know now that addicts, that's what, that's what happens. So it's mm-hmm. definitely a much better way for me to live. It, it feels better to me to yeah. live this way, although it takes a lot of work. <laughs> Thinking again about my relationship with my kids, because mm-hmm. my relationship with my parents was never rough. Mm-hmm. It was always cordial, I'll say. I don't feel like it was really close, which is also interesting, but that maybe that's partly me and maybe it's partly my father. Mm-hmm. But our one kid when they were in their senior year in high school became, I'll say oppositional. I'm not sure I'm using that in its strict psychological sense, but Mm -hmm. definitely 
was not cooperative. In fact, when I was re-listening to the episode that, that we recorded before, mm-hmm. I had talked about that when they first took drugs and we had asked them to consider not using drugs while they were living in our house. And they said, no, that's not something I would consider. When it was time for that kid to go off to college and they were going off to college more than a thousand miles away. I drove to the airport. I pulled up to the curb. The kid got out with his baggage. Mm. I said, have a great semester and drove off. I actually circled around, pulled into the parking lot and went back inside to make sure that they got through the TSA. But I was not saying hi. I was not waving because Mm -hmm. I think the kid was ready to be gone and I was ready for the kid to be gone. (laughs) We have a much better relationship now. In fact, when they came home for Christmas break, things were a lot better. Four months separated did a lot. Mm -hmm. But the thing I think that really made a huge difference in that relationship is when they got into some problems, which I've talked about before, and I had to go down to support them while they dealt with the problems that they had caused, which involved getting readmitted to school and finding a new place to live and dealing with a restraining order that their ex-girlfriend had put on them and all kinds of good stuff. I was there for a week, and at the end of the week, this kid who a year and a half before had been so ready to be gone, gave me a big hug and said, thank you for being here. That was program. Mm -hmm. That was program repairing a relationship because I used my program tools really heavily during that period in terms of not blaming, Mm -hmm. in terms of not fixing. Okay. There was some serious shit going on there and I was not fixing it for him. I was letting my child have the dignity of fixing their own problem. But supporting, as I've said, providing a place to live, food to eat, and transportation, which they could not do for themselves. And I wouldn't have been able to do that without the relationship tools that I learned in this program. Absolutely. I love that story. I love hearing that. It actually gives me hope because my child is getting older and... um, (laughs) really asserting his own independence. And I'm now faced with not blaming or not doing the things that I want to do (laughs) as a, you know, an an parent, it's just, ah, and the good news is I can bring these issues to people I trust. It's cool. It's really cool, but Mm -hmm. it's terrifying at the same time. Mm -hmm. So thanks for sharing that. (laughs) Yeah. What about relationships we do choose? And and you wrote here dating. Okay, that's something you can choose. <laughs> Friends, you can choose. Jobs, maybe not quite so much. Interesting, yeah. Uh, well, I guess for me, looking back at my dating history, <laughs> it, there is a pattern, absolutely a pattern. And I think a lot of my program recently has been looking and really trying not to judge, which is a tall order for me. And in, I think just in Al-Anon in general, just a really tall order because boy, do I want to beat myself up about my choices when I do have choices, when I have had choices. I see a pattern and I'm trying to do better. I think I heard somebody suggest that as a topic of dating and recovery. In my limited experience in it, I still have attracted the same type of people. Okay. I was listening to a speaker talk. Yeah. Linda L., if you encounter her, Mm -hmm. she's good. Great. And 
she said her husband one time gave her a, a pack of business cards. And on the front, it had her name and phone number. And on the back, it said, I'm attracted to you, which means that you should probably check yourself into the nearest rehab center for evaluation. <laughs> I, mean, I should get some of those. <laughs> that might be helpful. Yeah. I don't know. I've had a really interesting experience. When I left with my children, my daughter was nine months old. Mm-hmm. And I didn't know whether I was going to get divorced or not, but I did make a promise to myself that I would get my youngest, who's the nine, who was the nine month old at the time, your kindergarten. Then I focus on myself more, whether or not that was right or wrong or healthy or unhealthy. It, it doesn't matter, but that's just what I had in my mind. And I wanted to stick to that. So I got her to kindergarten and then the pandemic hit. I was faced with real loneliness, yeah. but the truth was I was way lonelier in my marriage than I ever was during the pandemic. So that, that was a helpful thing to understand. Yeah. But I would like companionship. And that's even a weird, hard thing for me to say out loud. And even going through these relationship inventories over and over again, I have omitted so many things. And it's taken me years to even be honest with my sponsor about these types of relationships. And the last person that I dated, I was honest with her. And she tells me things that I don't actually want to hear, but mm. they're true. And this last go around, it was so helpful to have her repeat things to me that I had already said. And just her own experience, strength and hope mm-hmm. with things. And in that way, I was able to be, to, to make different choices. And actually, I've never, I never break up with people. I always just become incredibly awful until they break up with me. And then I'm like, Oh my God, I can't believe you left. <laughs> you know, It's just a pattern that I had established at some point. I've, I've never been single this long. And I've, I don't know, dating has been quite an interesting experience and I have to do it a day at a time. So, yeah, I don't know where that was going, but <laughs> yeah, I, obviously I haven't been dating in a long time. <laughs> Very different than when I got married. I, I mean, didn't even have text messaging when I got married. So oh. Wow. Yes. We, we met in 1980. Oh, so I haven't been dating in a long time. (laughs) Yeah. I was born in 1980. (laughs) You know, just from hearing other Al-Anons and alcoholics talk about their relationships and how they came together. We met when she came to where I was in grad school to go to grad school. And we had a mutual friend who was in grad school with me. So we met about a week later. We went on a camping trip to several national parks, sleeping in in a nominally two-person Girl Scout tent, which means it was really close together. Within less than a month, I had moved in with her. I was still married at the time, but my now ex-wife was living in the other side of the country, and it Mm -hmm. was clear that relationship was ending. Mm-hmm. But it hadn't ended officially. It had ended. Okay. She was gone. Mm-hmm. I spent the summer morning in the loss and then grabbed the first person who came along in some <laughs> sense. Grabbed the first interesting person who came along, right? Interesting. Yeah, yeah. exactly. I mean, sure. And that pattern, one of my dear friends in, in recovery here who has many more years than I do mm-hmm. uh, in program says, yeah, we started dating and, and, a month later, we got engaged, and a month after that, we were married, or something like that. I mean, it was a perfectly alcoholic yes. engagement and relationship, is the words that she puts on it, right? Mm-hmm. I hope that I don't have to 
do that all again. And if I do, it'll be very different because hopefully I'll be like 80 or 90 or something. (laughs) Who knows? It will be different, obviously, at that point. But the older people that I know that have found a new partner and chosen to formalize that relationship, it has often happened quickly. Because I think at that point in your life, you're like, I don't have much time left. What's the point of being Um, around the bush? Yeah. But I also feel like I would be much more intentional about Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. the kind of relationship that I want, the kind of person that I'm looking for. And it probably would not be somebody that my little picker inside says, here's somebody (laughs) you can fix. Yeah, I get that. I get that. And I have the kids too, and not a lot of time or energy. So I'm navigating it in the best way I can. My sponsor always says to give of my extra, not my essence. And usually Mm. by the end of the day, I'm into my essence. It's creating space for myself. I do the same thing with friends too, where I I love interesting. I love exciting. I love that sort of a dynamic. And I guess for me, I, I just end up being in these relationships where I, again, I don't know what I have to offer. This is a theme that's coming up a lot. I don't know what I have to offer them. And unless I'm giving in that relationship, I don't know where my place is. Mm -hmm. So that's another thing that I'm learning in Alan is how to be a friend and how to receive as well as give. Mm -hmm. And that's not easy for me. Yeah. Yeah. I've tried to express that to one of my kids who has had relationship issues and they're like, I want to find somebody I can marry and have kids. And if there's not somebody I can marry and have kids, I'm not interested. And I'm like, (laughs) that's a really hard to go from, you know, zero to married with kids. Why don't you see if just make friends with people (laughs) and hopefully one of those friendships will blossom into something bigger. (laughs) And we were talking to this kid on the phone recently and they were like we're engaged we had some further conversation and they had been friends for a year i'm like oh okay maybe they're actually learning something about relationships here and about how to build one i hope yeah Um, i I want my kids to be happy more will be revealed is what i've heard (laughs) so we'll see where that goes Oh, congratulations. (laughs) I said congratulations. And, you know, inside my head is like, oh, my God. I was doing that for you. (laughs) Oh, gosh. I know. I can't believe they grow up and make their own choices. Wow. I know. You teach your kids to think for themselves, and then they go do it. (sighs) What the heck? If only they didn't listen. Oh, boy. Then they get their own ideas. And, yeah. And that's another thing. This program is, and I've talked about this before, but it's the one kid who's Politics have gone in a very different direction than mine. I can use my program tools Mm -hmm. to choose what conversations I have Mm -hmm. and what conversations I don't have, what things we talk about and what things we don't talk about. And Mm. I have said, I've set that boundary on myself. I've expressed it. Let's talk about the things that, that we can find common ground on and let's not talk about because we're apparently neither of us is going to change the other's mind and it's just, it's painful and it, Mm -hmm. and I can do that in a healthy way most of the time. (laughs) So using the tools to keep that relationship because they're my kid. I love them (laughs) as a child, as as an adult child, but I don't want to lose the relationship, Mm -hmm. but I also choose not to get dragged into Mm -hmm. some of the things they're believing at the moment. Wow. 
That is so, I love when you tell that story. It's so hopeful. I, I always think if my child decided to have a different political viewpoint than me, I really don't know how I would have, I would manage it. It's nice to hear. It didn't start out being that. I think that the first time that this kid expressed some of the things that that they were believing, I was so upset by it. I screamed, just shut up. Don't say that. (laughs) Because also because I felt that they were hurting their sibling by some of the things they were saying. Sure. Um, Yeah. You know, so I was the Papa bear defending my cub against the other cub, but Hey, again, had to use the program tool because mm-hmm. we were actually walking from our car into church for the Christmas Eve service when that happened. Oh, wow. Yeah. And I spent a few minutes cooling down. Yeah. And then realized that for me, at least, mm-hmm. I needed to make amends right away so that I didn't carry that not into mm-hmm. the service where I wanted to have peace and love and right. you know, sitting in a candlelit room and singing hymns. All days. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> when do you see your family when you don't live in the same place? You see them right. at holidays. Yeah. So again, yeah. And that, that was an old behavior. Mm-hmm. That was a reactionary, angry behavior. I don't think alcoholism in my family caused that behavior, but mm-hmm. it definitely amped it up over the years and mm-hmm. then years unamping it. But every now and then, boom, pops up. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Which I've learned for me, it's to be expected sometimes, especially around holidays. They're in this area there, I live in Massachusetts, but they have Al-Anonathons and now they're all virtual on Thanksgiving, Christmas, New Year's. I tend to start my day with a meeting and they're usually like a meeting every hour on the hour for those um, special times we can be with our loved ones. So. That's right. <laughs> our, our loved ones who are also the button pushers in our lives. Yes, yes. Who I choose to have a relationship with. I, it's funny because uh, I, it's not program, but I've always I heard somebody say they know how to push your buttons because they installed them. Yeah. So, and I, I'm doing the same for my children. It's, it is what it is, but I like that you brought up the making an amends. So for me, when I was, looking into this topic, what kept popping up for me was my eighth step. And I don't know if I've ever heard your eighth step or if I have, I'm not sure if I remember it, but for me, when I got to the eighth step, that there were a lot of steps before that, that I had to get to. And, and I was being honest with my sponsor and I had 37 or 38 people on my list. And I realized that's a lot, but I really needed to go through all those relationships to understand what my part was. And if there was a formal amends that needs to be made, why or why not? Looking at that list, 38 people, I'm sure I threw some more on at the end, but in the end, I had three people to make an amends to. So I recognize how overly responsible I feel for others. And, and that was a really big eye opener for me in learning where I find myself in relationships. And then the first person on my eighth step list was myself. And that's where, when I do a 10th step, when I look back on my day and I, I almost always have to make an amends to myself. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's, it's a really cool thing to be able to do that. Yeah, I don't know. I know I've talked about step eight. We did at least one episode on step eight. So I certainly yeah. talked about it then. I'm just looking at my first step eight. Those are fun to go back to. Um, we, we worked the past to recovery questions. Here's a question. So in reviewing my list, is there a pattern reflecting 
new defects mm-hmm. in my character. Can I see how these defects harmed those on my list? Mm-hmm. Is this a pattern identified in working steps five or six? Mm-hmm. And first thing, anger. taking charge got to be right disinterest slash self-interest and isolation and then there's a question about minding someone else's business and overly responsible for others is a question that you asked here and Mm -hmm. yes because of that growing up pattern that i thought that if i loved somebody then it was my responsibility to fix their problems And one of the nice little slogans that I've learned in recovery is help is the sunny side of control. I love that one. It's not in a book. It's not an official slogan, but oh my God, am I helping you to control you? Am I helping you so that you'll do what I want you to do? Mm-hmm. Probably for um, me. <laughs> but interestingly, when I first started thinking about who had I harmed and I think I started thinking about it in step four. There's this questions about who do you have resentments against and mm-hmm. and that sort of thing. And I was one of these Al-Anons who had a really hard time thinking of people to put on the list. I was the opposite of you in that respect. There were some people that were obvious, like my kids. Mm-hmm. I grudgingly put my alcoholic wife on the list. And the book told me I should put myself on the list, so I did. And then I had trouble. There were some people that I had effectively thought bad things about. Mm-hmm. But I wasn't sure that I had actually hurt them as I've revisited those questions, as I've re-inventoried a couple of times over my however many years it's been. I, I was able to find, to remember some more people that I had done harm to, some of whom Amends are not possible because they're long gone from my life. Maybe they live on a different continent. Some of whom, one person who I did not, and this is a little embarrassing, but I caused harm in a relationship I had with a person in recovery, which I did not recognize at the time. And that person eventually cut off all contact. And it took me a while to be able to do a deep enough inventory on what had happened to see the harm that I had caused. Mm-hmm. I think. <laughs> okay. I think okay. to the, to the best of my understanding, the only amends I can make to that person are to do my best to not go there again. Mm-hmm. So yeah, those patterns, that was a pattern. The pattern there was, one of, I'll call it emotional neediness, that I was trying to use a person to fill a gap that wasn't their job to fill. Mm-hmm. And I didn't see it happening until somebody else did. Yeah. Oh, right. uh, what is the reading and how Al-Anon works say? is says, Al-Anon does not promise that sobriety will solve all our problems. Recovery is progress, not perfection. Mm-hmm. All of it, yeah. And uh, and I keep learning at things at a deeper level. So mm-hmm. if I if that had happened before I did my eight-step, that person would have ended up on my eight-step list. But I realized that the girlfriend I had in college realized, remembered, let's say remembered, I had done some harm in that relationship. Mm-hmm. I have no idea where she is now. But if I ever do run into her, I'm ready. 
to say, this thing that I did, these things that I did, feel like I harmed you in doing those things. Yeah, I love that. I've definitely been there with that feeling of trying to use somebody to fill a gap that wasn't their job to fill. That makes sense. And I get that. (laughs) I get that. And those are the things though, like that I felt so unburdened by, by going through the eighth step with my sponsor and just explaining things. And she was able to give me um, so much insight because I allowed her to get to know me. And she pointed out things that that in a very loving way that I would never have been able, ever have been able to do without working a program. I was just so lucky to have these 12 steps, um, even when I feel sorry for myself. Yeah, my eighth step ended up being really a, a great experience on it. Like I said, was me. I was on the top and then my both my parents. And instead of making a formal amends, she asked me to write a thank you card to them. I've heard that. Yeah. From I other people. Yeah. I don't remember where, but I remember I heard somebody talking about Rather than trying to, as you say, make amends for things that you did, how did he put it? It was like, and and this might have been even no, this was yeah, this was a parent who was still living, but the 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 person I think did not have a good or maybe did not have any relationship with the moment, and and their sponsor said, write effectively a gratitude list about this person, and. Having done that, then he was able to rebuild a relationship with his parent that he had hated for most of his life. But by taking some time to think about the the positive things that had been there instead of the negative things that are so easy to perseverate on. I, to some extent, I had to do that as my father was dying Mm -hmm. because he was not an easy person to have a close relationship with. We were never really in in opposition to each other. I always would spend time with him and, and get along with him okay. But to think about, to just spend some time thinking about what did he do for me? What was good in my life because of him mm-hmm. changed the way that, that I was able to feel about him in the last years of his life. And after I remember when his father died and he wrote an elegy or whatever. And I was like, wow, mm-hmm. would I be able to do that for my father? Mm-hmm. I think wow. I did. Could I have done that without the tools I got here? I don't know. But mm-hmm. this, the practice of gratitude, I think it has been really important there. Wow, that was beautiful. Thank you. So, yeah, yeah your sponsor is right on target. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty cool. I like her a lot. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. So I actually ended up being able to make like a verbal nine step with my mom too. And it was really cool. And the truth is my sponsor helped me realize a lot of the things that happened, I was still a kid, mm-hmm. you know, and she was the adult in those situations. And I had that switched around somewhere in my feeling responsible for it. So now I'm really trying to, be responsible to myself. And again, that is a pretty steep learning curve, but if I do a day at a time, it's easier. Yeah. Megan, this has been just a really engaging and deep conversation for me. And I just wonder, what would you like to, to conclude with? What would you like to say here about 
the disease of relationships and how recovery has helped you to have healthier relationships? Yeah, I think it's uh, it's one I feel like I, we could talk about, I could talk about forever, but I think that really realizing that relationships in my life are important and the quality of my life depends on the quality of my relationships. And so I feel like in that way, I have a ton of gratitude towards Al-Anon and really towards myself <laughs> for showing up, for doing the work that it, it really is challenging especially for a perfectionist who wants to be right all the time it's hard to do these things so i think with that one i would just like to maybe end with a reading about let it begin with me from how Al-Anon works so it's page 70 so um, often a very legitimate need or desire goes unrecognized because we expect that need to be met by someone else we may be yearning for more honesty in, our, in a relationship or more pleasurable weekends yet taking no responsibility for our own part in addressing these needs. This is like going hungry while waiting for someone who doesn't cook to make a dinner. Let it begin with me might suggest that we go ahead and cook for ourselves, go out for dinner, or make plans with someone who cooks. In short, we take responsibility for getting our own needs met. So I just want to thank you for helping me learn to get my own needs met. I really appreciate the opportunity. Thank you. I think that leads in very nicely into this quote that you pulled from the dilemma of the alcoholic marriage, which says she realized that if a relationship were to change, the one who first saw the kind of attitudes required had the obligations to hold these attitudes and behave accordingly. It just dovetails so nicely with that reading about let it begin with me. Absolutely. We got a few contributions on this topic after Megan and I had recorded the episode. So I will present them here without comment. Eric writes, Hi, Spencer. For me, this is a bit mixed. Some of my relationships have vastly improved, while some have deteriorated or evaporated altogether. On the improved side, my relationship with my daughters and immediate family members has been restored to levels that exceeded my hopes. There is a new level of honesty, trust, open communication, and love. On the other side, there are those with whom I have fallen away from. I suppose this is a result of my changes to a large degree. Recognizing unacceptable behavior and setting boundaries has much to do with this. I have also rekindled relationships that had all but disappeared. Old friends that I haven't heard from in years have come back, and I am truly blessed with these. As I have heard in the rooms, God removes people from our lives to protect us. Don't chase after them. He also restores people in my life that in our darkest times we were too distracted to see or appreciate. The gifts of recovery are my awakenings and awareness to realize this and embrace it, all of it. Yours in recovery, Eric B. Thanks, Eric. Julie left us a voicemail. Hi, Spencer. It's Julie. I'm calling in with a share about disease of relationships. So that's my disease. My disease is not alcohol. It's relationships. I grew up with a drinking father and my mother who didn't have program. It's interesting. A couple of um, podcasts ago, there was a caller who called in and she was talking about her significant relationship. And she said something about what I heard her say is she kept abandoning herself in order not to be abandoned by her partner. And I thought, oh my goodness, that is that is so me in my all significant relationships. 
I'm not in a relationship now. In my last relationship, I, yeah, I kept abandoning myself in trying so hard not to be abandoned by him. And that relationship, and again, I realized, oh, no one can abandon me except for me. The only person who can abandon me now in this world is me. When I was a kid, yes, I felt abandoned by my parents, by my drinking father and my mother, whose energy was in fighting with my father and trying to control me and my sisters. And yes, children can be abandoned by their grown-ups who are supposed to love and nurture them unconditionally. However, I am not a child anymore. I'm an adult. I'm a quite capable adult, actually. So no one can really abandon me. And going back to relationships, the most important relationship that I have is my relationship with my higher power, which to me equals, it is the same, my relationship with myself. Because I come from God. Now I know that. Thanks to program. The source of my very being is God. My relationship with myself is my relationship with my higher power because my higher power is not separate from me. And all the other relationships in my life, even my relationship with my son, it is a reflection of my relationship with myself. So when I can love myself unconditionally, when I can be compassionate with myself, I can be like that with other people. And what I know for sure is what I don't have, I cannot give to others. And what I don't do, I cannot teach others. So if I want love from others, I need to be able to give it to myself first. So therefore, I can give it to others. Another thing about relationships is not going to the hardware store for bread. I'm the only one in recovery in my family of origin. So not going to those people looking for heart-to-heart connection or looking for unconditional love and compassion. I have my sponsor and I have my program friends for that. And detaching with love, that knowing, really knowing in my heart that my family, not just my family, everyone, every single one of us on earth is doing the very best we can in this very moment. I can detach with love from my family of origin. Thank you. Thanks, Julie, for calling and sharing your experience. And Carol writes, The tools of an Al-Anon help me to disrupt enmeshment in my relationships without creating an argument or dismissing my own needs or trying to fix something or be competitive with the other. The tools assist me to really own my reactions and attitudes and be extremely honest with myself about blame to myself or blame of the other and where I want the other to be different so I feel better seeing things for the way they are instead of where I want them to be, seeing I am falling short my blind spots, actively learning to not accept unacceptable behavior from myself or the other, being really honest about what my needs are and putting my own recovery first and making choices in the direction 
of what is really important to me. In the long run, in a sustainable, healthy way for myself, that includes my own joy. Thank you, Julie. We like to provide a different angle on our topic by picking some music, and you picked a couple of songs. What's the first one? I love this part of the program. I love music, and I picked a song that I've listened to for a while, and I like the song just because I think it sounds super cool. It has this nostalgic sound to it, but it's I think it was from 2014, but it's called My Silver Lining by First Aid Kit. And I picked it because whenever I go to meetings, I love experience, strength, and hope. And for me, to hear the hope of the program it's what keeps me going on. So the lyrics were helpful. It says, I try to keep on keeping on. I hear a voice calling out for me, these shackles I've made in an attempt to be free, be it for reason, be it for love. I won't take the easy road. So for me, I just think looking back, I can honestly say that my intentions were always pretty good. And again, recovery isn't always pretty. And today it's been a particularly hard day, but I won't take the easy road of going back to how it was before because it's just not worth it. In this section of the podcast, we talk about our lives in recovery, how we experienced recovery in the past, I'm going to say past few weeks because I'm not getting on a weekly schedule <laughs> despite my best intention. I get it. Um, yeah. And as I mentioned earlier, today was our first in-person church meeting since mm-hmm. early March 2020. Wow. Oh, minister said 19 months. I'll go with that. And it was not back to 100% normal. We're doing the best as a community to keep everyone safe and to meet each person's individual level of comfort. And sometimes that means that we have some individual discomfort, like wearing a mask, wearing a face covering uh, during services, sitting apart, not singing. We'll get there, but it's not happening yet because singing is one of those good ways to spread the virus. Good and not in the outcome mm-hmm. sense. But seeing people in person, seeing people without a screen between us. And when I'm in a meeting on a Zoom, even talking to a single person on a Zoom, if I'm looking at your face on the screen, which mm-hmm. I'm doing right now, you can see I am not looking at you. Yeah. If I'm looking at you, your face is off over here somewhere. So it's just not the same. It's better than nothing, mm-hmm. but it's just not the same. And I debated going. There is a, a Zoom option. There was an amazing array of video equipment set up at the back of the sanctuary for doing this Zoom simulcast of the service. And I'm sure there will be days when I experience it, but I really wanted to be there. I was thinking about boundaries. I was thinking about what's right for me. And part of that was being at the service today, but also being asked to do service. And I know I've talked about service maybe in the last couple of episodes, but it, it comes up as we're coming back together, as our children and youth are coming back into the community physically, there's a need for people to work with those children and youth. And I have worked with teenage youth in the, in our congregation for about 14 years in various different roles. 
no, okay, because again, I got to take out the last year and a half that didn't exist. We'll say 12 or 13 years. Okay. Mm-hmm. I enjoy doing it, but it also takes time and it takes energy. Mm-hmm. When we came into to, to the COVID times, I had been starting to feel burnout symptoms. Like, mm-hmm. you know, I'm not feeling like going today, but I need to be there kind of thing. Mm-hmm. I always enjoyed it when I got there. Mm-hmm. But I know that if I kept pushing it, eventually that attitude would come over into the time when I was there. And then I'm not giving my best to the people who, who deserve it. So I had made a decision to, to step back from that role. And so when I got an email from the person who's directing the programs this year saying, Hey, you know, would you like to help us out? I wrote back and said, I really can't. I'm taking on some different service responsibilities in the community and I don't have the time. And like I said, it was a year and a half ago, I was starting to burn out and I don't want that to happen. And she was like, okay. And then maybe a month later, I get another email from her. It's like, would you consider taking on this particular role? Because we're still looking for people to to fill that role. And that would be working with the high school age youth. I love that age group. I love being with them. I love their energy. I love their openness and that they're thinking for themselves. They really have their own opinions. And sometimes that's really frustrating. But for me, it's energizing. Yeah. But I had already accepted this other service role and had told myself that this was going to be the service that I was doing for the congregation the next couple of years. So I sat on it. And partly I sat on it because. I didn't want to say no, but partly I sat on it because I really wanted to let it sink in. And so this morning I sent an email saying, no, I really can't do it. And then when I saw her after the service, I went up and I said, look, she said, I just saw your email. (laughs) (laughs) She said, it's okay. I found somebody. I'm like, I did. I had to be deliberate about it. I had to think about it because I wanted to do it, but I didn't want to do it if I wasn't going to be able to do it to the best of my ability. And that's a boundary on me. That's understanding what I can commit to and setting a boundary to not commit to things that I can't do. So, yeah, that's, I think that's what I want to talk about right now. How about yourself? How is recovery working in your life right now? Thank you so much. I needed to hear that too. (laughs) So I definitely have been saying yes to more things than I could commit to. In the last couple of weeks, school started for the kids and all their sports started. And by the way, there's still a pandemic. And and I have changed careers since we last talked. And it's more of like a gig thing. So when these jobs pop up, I take them. So all I think now I'm realizing why I feel so depleted <laughs> just sitting here going over the last few weeks. I didn't think I could say no to a lot of these things. That's something for me to think about. And we, I just ended my term as a group representative in one of my meetings. And that was pretty cool. It was cool. And the new group representative, we had a business meeting today at the meeting and she spoke and I was like, Wow. <laughs> this is awesome. It works. I don't enjoy zoom. I'm easily distracted. And usually the kids are around. So they're, it's just, it's too chaotic for me. So I've been going to those meetings though, because of my service in the meeting. So I'm really grateful of that meeting. That was really cool. And that was something to reflect on this week. And then I think of my other two meetings that I like to go to one of them, 
has decided to split the meeting. So there's a fully in-person meeting and there's a fully online meeting and they're two separate meetings now. Mm -hmm. And that was really neat to go through that process. And I have been to the in-person meeting, which I got emotional at because it was like you just expressed so well. It was really nice to see people. And then the other meeting that I go to is hybrid. And I did make it to that one because I was working. I would say that the way that recovery is working for me this week is by showing me areas where I can gently say, I get out of alignment here a little bit. I might need to maybe not rush right into my day and hit the ground running because it compounds to the end of the week. And I feel like it's Sunday and I, I have no extra to give. And here you are giving. Yeah, but I, yeah, exactly. But I, this actually, I, I do get so much out of this. Like I keep saying, I, I know I will probably feel like I, I definitely lost a little bit of like emotional weight after we talk. Thank you for that again. Looking ahead, I have an upcoming topic discussion with a guest about using writing as a recovery tool. At least that's, I think that's where we're going to go with it. So if you have used writing uh, to help you navigate recovery, don't you share your experience, strength, and hope. Join our conversation here. Please leave us a voicemail, send us an email with your feedback, your questions, your experience, strength, and hope. And Megan, how can people do that? You can call and leave us a voicemail at 734-707-8795. Call right now to 734-707-8795. You can use the voicemail button on the website to join the conversation from your computer. You can also send a voice memo or email to feedback at the recovery.show. We'd love to hear from you. Share your experience, strength, and hope, or your questions about today's topic of a disease of relationships or any other upcoming topics, including writing as a recovery tool. If you have a topic you'd like us to talk about, let us know. If you would like advance notice for some of our topics so that you can contribute to that topic. You can sign up for our mailing list by sending an email to feedback at the recovery.show. Put email in the subject line to make it easier to spot. Our, our website is the recovery.show where we have all the information about the show. We have notes for each episode. This episode will be at the recovery.show slash 368. Links to the books that we read from or talked about, videos for the music, and links to some other recovery podcasts and websites that we like. And you picked us another song. Yes, and I debated on this one because it's so schmaltzy and silly. Not silly, but it's been performed by a bunch of artists, but it's that song, You'll Never Walk Alone. And This is from Carousel, right? Carousel, yes. Originally, it was like a Roger and Hammerstein yeah. song, but then it's been covered over and over again. And it's just beautiful. And my grandmother, who had been really impacted, profoundly impacted by alcoholism, she just loved this song. And um, she was pretty stoic, but also really funny in that like dark humor kind of way. So she loved this song and she really wanted it played at her husband's funeral, but the church said, no, it's too secular. So she just left the church that day and never looked back. Wow. I just think it's a funny story. And I recognize a lot of that type of behavior in myself. So I don't know. I just love that song. And it's also a really good message for me to hear and to be reminded of, I don't have to do it alone. It is a wee program. And I'm slowly learning that I can trust myself and others, and, and I'm practicing that in my relationship. So it's a great song. What are you sharing with us this week? 
Gina writes, Hi, Spencer. Thank you for all this work, time, commitment, and service. It is greatly felt. I'd like to suggest some topics for you and future co-hosts. I read A Daily Reader, September 8th, I think, mentioning alcoholic dementia, and it mentioned live and let live. The Daily Reader also mentioned how it seemed the health services weren't understanding alcoholism was involved with the mental health problem. This hits home for me and remains a huge source of resentment, lack of trust, and fear. At one point, my loved one was in the hospital, and I felt like I was the only person considering that alcohol was connected or that they should be treated with alcohol withdrawal in mind. This was a huge practice in let go and let God. This is related to the disease of alcoholism. I'd love to hear an episode more about alcoholism with mental illness, depression, anxiety, bipolar, dementia, etc., and how to navigate the two. They're clearly so connected, yet it seems the healthcare system is broken, and it is hard to find help that understands all these intersecting factors. And not just mental illness, but other general medical issues as well. I recently heard in an Al-Anon meeting, if you are not patient, you will become one. Because all of this ongoing stress can create real physical medical problems due to the family disease of alcoholism. Someone was sharing that they felt their chronic illness was directly related to the family disease of alcoholism. I wonder, too, if it would be interesting to have a roundtable episode with people who work in hospitals, mental health as doctors, therapists, etc., who then also come to Al-Anon or AA and what that experience was like for them. I heard Cecily mention that yelling can be a form of domestic violence. I think it is from episode 41, Vulnerability, but don't quote me. Sorry about that, Gina, I just did. In my experience, irritable and unreasonable can escalate quickly to yelling, especially during these tense times of COVID when we are all quarantined together. I'd appreciate an episode topic on what this type of domestic violence looks like in more subtle forms. The yelling, tension, blowing up, and then pretending like everything is fine later. I feel this inconsistent behavior has fostered my hypervigilance and people-pleasing. I feel traumatized by family members yelling. I know that I have picked up some of these controlling behaviors and tension as well. I have to look at my side of the street. Even if I'm not raising my voice like they did to me, I think my intensity and aggression may be doing the exact same thing. I'm trying to be honest with myself that maybe tensely hammering down my point is just one step away from yelling. I feel I am doing it because it has to be understood or they won't hear me unless I'm speaking that way. But I know that is distorted thinking. Perhaps it is because I feel criticized or defensive. I always have choices, and hopefully in time I can release these character defenses with new Al-Anon tools. I'm going to pause for a minute here because that paragraph really resonates with me, especially tensely hammering down my point, one step away from yelling. I'm doing it because it has to be understood or they won't hear me unless I'm speaking that way. I have totally been there and I can go there if I'm not watching, if I'm not being mindful of what I'm feeling and how I'm reacting. I can totally go there. Yeah. I bet you may have felt that way at some point, especially in the relationship with the unreasonable, as we would put it, alcoholic. If they would just listen, if they would just understand. Oh my. Next, a newcomer just asked me after their first meeting, this all sounds great, but what is the program? It got me thinking about how confusing it can all be at first. I answered as best I could, and of course suggested your podcast. Episode 195, What is Al-Anon? 
I would love if there was a playlist tab on the website with a list of episodes good for newcomers, as well as a new episode dedicated to newcomers. Maybe questions, what did you hear as a newcomer? What did you say to newcomers? What helped you as a newcomer? What should newcomers know? More questions like that. Again, Spencer here. Um, That's a great idea. I've actually thought about that, and I'm going to try to see if I can crowdsource this. If you have a favorite episode or episodes that you feel would really would have spoken to you or did speak to you as a newcomer to the program, drop us an email feedback at the recovery dot show. And maybe I can use that to, to put together such a playlist. Gina continues. I know they're probably already done, but I'd love more people's perspectives on would you rather be right or happy forgiveness, detachment, boundaries, shame, and unhealthy guilt. Finally, uh, here's an Al-Anon UK podcast I came across. And there's a link that I will put in the show notes at therecovery.show slash 368. Thank you for all, Spencer. Kind regards, Gina. Becky left us a voicemail. Unfortunately, for some reason, the recording broke up a couple of times. Hi, my name is Becky, and my son is recovering after... I guess, 13 years of heroin use. He does take a block, and he's not using heroin, but he's not healing very well. I guess it takes the brain a long time. I'm glad I found your site, and I'm referring to his blog, Sober Steve Recovery. It's got two little feet, I think, walk, picture of walking in some green and blue coloring. I told him to check your pod out, and I will also. I'm having a hard time with these long-term effects that I wasn't aware of. The violence, the risk-taking, poor choices. Thank you for what you're doing. Thanks, Becky, for writing. Hang in there. Keep coming back, because in my experience, just sometimes being in the room with other people affected by this disease made it uh, easier for me to live with the the long-term effects. As you say, it does take time. And I will put a link to SoberSteveRecovery.com in the show notes at therecovery.show slash 368. Thanks for that, that reference. Rajni, I hope I'm pronouncing that name right, writes, Hi, Spencer. First, I want to say thank you so much for your podcast. I'm an adult child of a dysfunctional family, and I really appreciated your last episode with Andrea. I've been listening to your show for almost two years now, around the time I began my recovery journey and had my spiritual awakening. Your show has been such a gift. I listen to it on Sundays at home while cooking, when I walk my dog after work every day, and whenever I can't get to a meeting or need a little extra support, experience, strength, and hope. The first episode I listened to that resonated so deeply for me was Choosing Love Over Fear with Julie. I felt like she was describing my childhood. It was the first time I had heard someone sharing about their experience so honestly, as with family dysfunction, one of the keys is don't talk. I'm so grateful for Julie sharing her story and this show. Because of it, I was able to fully commit to my recovery, and this program has truly changed my life. I am calmer. I am aware of my own dysfunctional behavior, and I am focusing on myself, but of course, progress, not perfection. On a recent podcast, I heard another email suggesting a topic, teachers in recovery, or something like that. I've been a teacher for 12 years. I've taught high school for a decade and now middle school. 
This year has been especially challenging for me returning to in-person learning. And because this is my first year back to being in the classroom since I've been in recovery, I'm in the process now of trying different ways to apply my program, new perspective, new habits, and new and different ways of doing things to my job to keep my serenity. I feel like teaching is the perfect career for alcoholics and ACAs. So much of it is, or used to be for me, pre-recovery, about managing others' behavior and being hypervigilant, among other traits of ACAs. So I'm exploring how I can apply my program in my work while still being effective and inspirational, and what that looks like now, that I'm doing things differently. If you decide to do a show on Teachers in Recovery, I so look forward to it and would love to be part of it. Thank you so much for your service. You and your podcast are a lifesaver with love and gratitude, Rajni. And actually, Rajni will be coming on to do exactly an episode about their experience using their recovery program in the classroom as a teacher. So thank you, Rajni, for stepping up. And if you want to step up and share your experience, strength, and hope on any of the topics that have been mentioned so far, you can send an email to feedback at the recovery.show and I will hook you up. Rajni mentioned the episode with Julie, Choosing Love Over Fear. That was episode 331, which you can find, of course, at therecovery.show slash 331. Ashley left us a voicemail about a higher power moment she had while listening to episode 364, Fear of Abandonment. Hello, Spencer and Recovery Show hosts. Thank you for all your service to all of us in the program. I needed to send you this message and let you know about a very big higher power moment that I had with you listening to your podcast this morning. I was listening to episode oh, 364, Fear of Abandonment, and I had listened to it off and on um, on my drive to work, and I didn't have enough time during my commute one day to listen to all of it, and I didn't return to it for probably about a month because I was listening to other things. And there was only about 15 minutes left in the podcast. And in that 15 minutes, Shannon mentioned a meditation by Sarah Blondin, and I believe it was titled Your Seed of Softness. And I just about had to pull over the car because that morning I had listened to that exact meditation. And being that I turned on the podcast and listened to the tail end of a podcast I hadn't listened to in over a month. And it was speaking to exactly something I had been listening to that morning. I felt that was my higher power saying, see, this is the thing you need to work on. And I'm here for you. And together we can do this. So that was awesome and very surprising and Anybody who was thinking of meditating, I agree 120% with Shannon. This lady, Sarah Blondin, has brought me a lot of recovery. I access her meditations through an app called Insight Timer, which I started using because it was recommended by this podcast. So I also highly recommend it and Sarah Blondin herself because she's just... I believe she's one of us and she's amazing. So thank you for all that you do in this podcast and for recommending wonderful people who also are seeking to heal and reciprocate that experience, strength and hope out into our worlds. 
and I look forward to listening to more podcasts. Uh, thank you and goodbye from Ashley from Alberta. We'll put a link to the meditation that Ashley mentioned, your seed of softness, and a link to the Insight Timer app. Once you get into the app, you can search for Sarah Blondin, or probably you can search for Seeds of Softness. I haven't, I haven't tried that search, but I did find her. And there's a number of meditations by her in the Insight Timer app. Nancy S. wrote, I listen to your podcast almost every day when I do a two-mile walk and love your podcast. Thank you for your service, Spencer. I really loved a podcast where a mom was reading a letter written by God to her, letting her know he was in charge of her alcoholic son, not her. It was very powerful and moving for me. I would love to find that and share with others and reread for myself. If you can share that podcast number, maybe I can find it in the notes or links. Just signed on for the first time. I have two sons in recovery and a husband who has been sober and in recovery for over a year and a half. Praise God after 25 plus years of chronic relapse. So I am a grateful Al-Anon member. Thank you again for your service. Hope you can let me know what that episode was from. I know you have 367, Nancy S. And I actually uh, don't remember exactly what episode it was from, but I do have a link to that letter, which is on a blog on the alanon.org website. And I will put that link in this episode, the recovery.show slash 368 in the, in the readings and links section of the notes. Misty left us a voicemail. Good morning, Spencer. This is Misty from Maryland. I am a deeply grateful listener of your podcast and so thankful for you and all of the people who have contributed along the way. So thank you so much for all that you do. And just want you to know it makes a big difference for me every morning. I listen to at least a portion for about, I don't know, a couple, 10 minutes or so. And I've made my way through lots of them. So thank you. I'm thinking about the podcast that's coming up on pain as a part of the recovery journey. And I just want to add my thoughts to that. Pain has served such a tremendous purpose for me in my healing journey. I want to give a very specific example of a physical that turns into every other area of my life, physical, emotional, spiritual. Just a few weekends ago, I did a triathlon down in Williamsburg, Virginia. I was doing it for my niece. And a long story short, it's her 21st birthday. I wanted her to have a positive experience around that particular birthday. And so the stakes were a little bit high for me related to that. That's important only in that I really wanted to do it. And I was having a lot of pain. I pushed so hard in the training that I got myself to a point where I ended up with a pinched nerve in my neck and I had nerve pain shooting down into my hand. Just eight years ago, I learned how to swim. And for those eight years, I've been a very inefficient swimmer. I've tried all these different coaching techniques, blah, blah, blah. And it wasn't until about two weeks before the triathlon that I was forced to learn to swim without my hands. There's a drill that I had tried for many, many, many times. I tried this drill. My coach would tell me, put your hands in your pocket and turn to breathe just from your hips. I couldn't do it. I, could, I, I literally could not 
do it. It was so frustrating for me. Here I am now, two weeks before this triathlon, and I'm hoping that this nerve pain will heal. And I really have to keep my endurance up. So I'm in the pool and I start kicking with my hands in my pocket, so to speak, down by my side. And you know what? My body knew how to do that. So the pain shooting down into my arm helped me learn to relax in the water. I had no choice. I had to learn to relax if I wanted to swim, and I did. So pain is so incredibly purposeful. If I can just open myself up to it. As swimming again, I just had a cyst removed from my neck, which means I have a stitch in there. And that stitch cannot be exposed to the elements, the environment. So I, I have to put on a, a, a very strong Band-Aid to make sure it's waterproof. And that area is painful for other reasons related to nerve pain and everything else. Anyway, I've gotten myself more, I can use my arms again and it's not so painful. And I'm actually more efficient in the water because of that. I'm taking that learned skill around relaxing in the water, turning from the hip and applying it to actually using my arms now. What I found yesterday as I was swimming with this Band-Aid on my neck and knowing that I really cannot have that Band-Aid come off, when I would do the swim wrong, lift my head up too high or uh, tweck my, my, my neck up to breathe, I could feel that pulling on my Band-Aid and I knew I, I couldn't have that. So I, again, the pain and the discomfort of that Band-Aid is what helped me to learn even more about how to turn to breathe without hurting my body. The pain in all areas of my life instruct me, don't go there, go here. Another real quick example is just a few days ago, I said to my wife, no, I don't worry about you. We're talking about how worried she is about everything in her world, including me. She's worried about me. And I said, no, I don't worry about you because I believe in you. You're going to get something from this. You've got what it takes. And then I said these words, you worry about me because you don't believe in me. And because of all the things I've learned in Al-Anon, I know what I was really saying to myself was that I don't believe in myself which was extremely painful and instructive. And with that, I, I turned that over to God, to my higher power, to my inner wisdom. And I prayed out on a hike to the woods and the trees, God, please help me to believe in myself. Remove this doubt, self-criticism, Replace it with faith and trust. Help me to believe in myself. Yet pain serves an amazing purpose. And I'm so incredibly grateful for those gifts that are given. I'm not always. I'm rarely grateful for the pain. And enormously grateful for the gifts that they offer. Again, thank you so much for this topic. Thank you so much for all that you offer through your service. I am in full receipt and so grateful. Have a great day. Thank you, Misty, for, for sharing that experience, those experiences of how 
pain has instructed you and perhaps helped you to heal in some ways and grow. Yeah. S.A. writes, Hello, Spencer. Love the show. I learned so much listening to your guests as I walk my dog, drive my car, or do housework. It's a purposeful way of multitasking, which keeps me looking forward to mundane tasks because I'll have a chance to listen. It's truly a valuable service to Al-Anon. Thank you for providing it. My favorite guests are Eric and Esther. They are both great. Andrea's recent episode on the gift of pain was very impactful and powerful as well. Spencer here, just a reminder, Andrea has her own podcast called Adult Child, if you want more of her. And back to SA. I have a topic suggestion that I would love to visit with you about. I don't think it's been covered, but if I missed it and it has, just let me know. The topic is risk-taking. This seems to me, as a long-time Al-Anon recovery person, a topic that we overly responsible types like to steer clear of, but there is so much power in extending ourselves and taking risks in life. Be it going after a job for which we are fairly certain we won't be selected, to opening up and being vulnerable. We stand to gain so much when we live beyond our comfort level and risk. In so many ways, living on the edge of risk can expand our lives and help propel us into a more confident, happy, and evolved human being with more life experience from which to build. One of the first things I remember hearing in Psych 101 many years ago is that at the end of their life, people regret what they didn't do more than those things they did and at which they failed. Think about it. When we risk and fall short, we learn something. We are proud that we were courageous and we showed the world and ourselves that we believed in ourselves. That's a fantastic way in which to live. Yet, primarily, when we think of risk, we think in terms of danger, Will Robinson. Get back. Don't. Just don't. Wouldn't it be revolutionary to unpack that premise and turn it inside out? Think of always stand to gain when we risk, not always stand to lose. Of course, I'm not speaking to risky behaviors here, but risk-taking generally. There are many readings on risk in our readers also, and of course, many song selections. Are you interested? If so, let's explore if it could work out. Please reach out if you're interested in a conversation about it. S-A-L. Interesting idea. It's not one that I've thought of, but you make some really good points. And yes, I'm reaching out. So hopefully that will be coming to you in the not-too-distant future. Our frequent correspondent, Alina, sent us shares about gratitude and about slogans. Good morning. My name is Alina. I just wanted to share on episode number 129, which was on gratitude. It's funny how my higher power always knows exactly what I need to hear. I was on my morning run with my dog this morning and just having a difficult time being in the moment, but knowing I needed to share with my sponsor. So I did that with her. And then um, just using my dog as an example, really, on the walk up to the park where we run, we've done this route like a hundred times and it's always brand new for her it seems she's sniffing and looking at different things and making sure everything's just as it was or if it's not she's curious and she just has a good spirit about things and so I was kind of using her as an example because I've been struggling lately with a few aspects of my life and sometimes when that happens I put a lot of blame on myself Right now I'm struggling with allergies, so it's like frustrating to cope with that and not really have any control over it. I'm taking antihistamines, but it still flares up and I don't know the right thing to do for that. So all I can do is what I can do. I'm grateful that it's not putting me into the point where I can't exercise and I can't run because I do tend to have asthma problems 
when they get really bad, but I haven't had that yet. So I'm grateful for that. But just being in the moment is really hard, struggling with that and things at work, some change in staff members. And that's always a little bit of an obstacle for me because I want everything to go well. And I just have to like, let that go. And, And it's not my responsibility to make sure that people like each other or get along and I can't force it. I just have to be responsible for my part of my job. And I just need to focus on that. And I think a lot of it has to do with, I don't like seeing the altercations between people or the little like subtle, whatever's going to happen, not helping each other or that kind of thing. And then with my qualifiers, I just feel like the time that we have together isn't quality time and they don't get that I want quality time. Like I'm trying to express it, not force it, but I just make suggestions like, oh, can we do this or can we do that? And it's just knocked down. And one of my qualifiers actually tried to call me out on some things and said, I think you're having expectations and you're trying to force the outcome. And I don't really think that I was. I was just trying to voice like what I wanted. And if I didn't get it, I wasn't trying to push the issue. But it does make me a little disappointed when I don't get what I want. But that's what I have to accept. So I just have to focus on myself. And maybe if my health wasn't, you know, struggling with these allergies and getting depressed about them, my self-care, my self-worth would be a little bit more. But anyway, I don't, it's not forever. It's just a moment in time. It'll pass. But I really liked the gratitude being reminded because recently me and one of my Al-Anon friends tend to send a gratitudes list. Try and do it daily, but at least three or four times a week, which is refreshing. And it just helps put things in perspective a little bit. And that's always a good feeling. I wanted to share on episode number 131, which was the slogans episode. It's a good reminder with the slogans. I know when I first came into the program and I was hearing about them, they were really like fresh and new and it seemed so ideal to use them on a daily basis in all aspects of my life. I'm not going to say that I became numb to them as time goes on, but I don't know. I guess they have different meanings. And I just have to remind myself when I'm feeling alone or down on myself that I have these slogans and they are helpful, especially when something triggers me and I'm trying to like not react to it. I can just remind myself and just ask myself, how important is it? Is this going to matter next week or a month from now? Is it worth getting upset, starting an argument. And sometimes that's not always easy because for me, I take things personal and I try, that's my number one, like the Q-tip or whatever is my number one thing because I just always grew up not wanting to talk to people and upset them or hurt their feelings. And I just don't understand why sometimes it's harder for some people. Like I see people on a daily basis, whether it's people I work with or clients, and they just blurt stuff out. And it's shocking to me. An easy does it is a good one too, because I can't be hard on myself. I have to realize that things happen the way they're going to happen. And I have to let it go and let God handle it. And sometimes I don't have to take on all the responsibilities of the world especially my world, I can just be in the moment, take care of myself and not worry about tomorrow or next week to a certain extent. But I did like this episode and I did like talking about how these slogans have helped me in my recovery. 
and they have helped me in working the steps as well. So I appreciate the topic. Thank you for letting me share. Thank you, Alina. The last song I picked this song, Megan was like, can you pick this song? I'm like, okay, I'll pick a song. <laughs> Thank you. I, I had five minutes to think about it, you know, and I picked this song, which I've always loved by an artist who I love, Richard Thompson, one of the, I, I think he's one of the premier folk rock guitarist in the world in our era. This song is Bee's Wing, which is actually about the 60s, but it's also about a relationship in which the two people in the relationship have very different life goals. It's, to me, this very intimately moving song, but it's also a sad song because at the end, they go different directions. Mm -hmm. And you can listen to all the songs at the recovery.show slash 368. I will also have a Spotify playlist. A few lyrics here. And I said that we might settle down, get a few acres dug, fire burning in the hearth, and babies on the rug. She said, oh man, you foolish man, it surely sounds like hell. You might be lord of half the world, you'll not own me as well. Oh, she was a rare thing, fine as a bee's wing, so fine a breath of wind might blow her away. She was a lost child, oh, she was running wild. She said, as long as there's no price on love, I'll stay, and you wouldn't want me any other way. Thank you for listening, and please keep coming back. Whatever your problems, there are those among us who have had them too. If we did not talk about a problem you are facing today, feel free to contact us so we can talk about it in a future episode. May understanding, love, and peace growing you one day at a time. <laughs>